Hey, I'm Pastor Paul Watson, and you're listening to the official podcast of the Downtown Vineyard Church. At DTV Church, we're followers of Jesus, and we believe that relationships are holy and that God loves everyone. We are so excited that you're a part of our online community of faith, and from wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message this week. I'm Rachel Armour, a proud DTV volunteer. I'm going to read chapter 15 in Revelation for us. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Then I looked and saw the temple in heaven. God's tabernacle was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. There is a battle coming. The war has already begun. It has raged unseen for millennia. And though we often struggle to see the conflict for what it really is, all of us can feel its effects. We wrestle with the powers of sin and death on a daily basis. And sometimes, in our darkest moments, it can feel like we're losing. But the word of the Lord tells a different story. Hope echoes throughout the pages of scripture. Despite the mystery that surrounds it, the book of Revelation offers the people of God a clear message. Fear not tomorrow. Tomorrow is one. All right. Good morning. Wow. What happened? Like, you guys are alive and awake. First service was super quiet. It was like, you guys need more coffee. Should we just go out to the coffee shop and just do service out there? So good job. Good job. Uh, so we're, we're going to be in chapters 15 and 16 today in the book of Revelation. Here, here's the interesting part. It's funny when you start a series out of the book of Revelation, how excited people are. They're like, oh, oh I've, always, I've always wanted to hear somebody teach on that. And there's almost kind of this buzz. I literally run into people across town that they don't even really go to our church. And they're like, hey, man, I'm listening to this series. Hey, and they're, like, they're kind of excited. It's kind of like this buzz. And I got to tell you, we're going to be in chapter 16. There is no buzz today. Like, what I mean by that is that, like, we all know that there's kind of these scary moments when you read the book of Revelation. There's kind of these moments you're like, oh my gosh, is that even real? That's chapter 16. And there's these moments that it's kind of like, for me, there's kind of like this thing where I'll run into people and they're like, hey, so you're teaching the book of Revelation. You're either really brave or you're extremely dumb. 
You know, lots of guys will go through their entire church history, like, and they'll never, ever teach, teach the book. I really felt the Lord place it on my heart this year. And there really is this sense for me, as your pastor, of just saying, it is time for the church to get dig deep into God's word and just fill up, man. Like just like press hard, press deep. I, I think that there's this peace that we're seeing it. We're seeing it across society, but there's this peace where it's like, all right, man, you've been living on sugar. You've been living on some candy. It's time for some meat. It's time for some food. And so we're going through the book of Revelation. We're going to actually come out of that in um, Easter. I'm going to do a two-part series called God's Amazing Grace. And then we're going to go into the book of James. And the, the book of James is literally this book that just says, this is how you live a life that honors God. You want to know how to? This is how you do it. Here's the interesting part about the book of James. The interesting part about the book of James is James was the brother of Jesus. Like, if you can convince your brother that you were God, you were probably God. I have two brothers. They don't think I'm even close. Right? And so there's this peace, but there's this moment for me where it's like, all right, downtown Vineyard Church, come on, let's go. Let's pick up the pace. Let's go. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's go. Let's go. Let, let's, let's get those spiritual practices going. This is important. This isn't, this isn't like, oh, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 12, and I'm good. No, this is like, how are you doing? How are you doing with your practices? How, how's your faith? How are you walking that out? You see, when you get into the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of symbolism. And the book is filled with all kinds of hope. However, it is also super blunt. It's also kind of scary, and there are moments where you're like, holy smokes, that's terrifying. Have you ever felt that? Yeah. Today we're going to read this uh, passage. Uh, pastors from like just abroad would tell you this is probably the scariest passage in Scripture. And so when we read it, what we're going to be reading about today is we're going to be reading about God's wrath, God's anger. God's rage. You're going to see God's anger just like just just come out. Here's the interesting part. When you read God's anger, there is literally this thing that happens in people. It gives people this pause, and I can tell you this is like kind of where rubber meets the road. And what I mean by that is I think we've all been in conversations, and I know that I'm regularly in conversations where people will be like, they'll ask me like certain questions, and they're like, like they're not easy questions. They're, they're not softball questions. They're literally hard, hard pitch, fast pitch questions. Questions like, how does a loving God allow evil and suffering? That when you look across the world and you tell me that God is loving, how does a loving God allow evil and suffering? And at this point in time in history, in society... There is a lot of evil in the world. You, you at least have had that question. You've at least been involved in a conversation that goes something like that. Like there's other questions that I'll get, and like why would God allow good people to go to hell? Like you're telling me God's good. Why would he allow good people to go to hell? That does not sound like a good God. If I'm going to give my life to God, that's not actually, that doesn't sound very good. Revelation 16 deals with this. We have these other questions that come up, and it comes up like, like when I read Scripture, it just seems like God's angry. I have a very, very close friend. He, he's, he grew up as a pastor's kid. 
He grew up in hellfire and brimstone. And he really does not have any reflection of Jesus in his life. And when we have talks, he's like, man, Paul, I grew up with it. And it just seems like God is angry. And when I read scripture, I see God is angry. And there's a question that came up literally this week in a conversation that I was having with somebody. And they said, when I read scripture, it just doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. Like when you, when you read about God's wrath, it just doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. Literally, should a person be separated from God for all eternity because they didn't choose him? Because they didn't choose him? Like that doesn't seem fair. And so this is an incredible chapter that we're going to look at because it answers these questions. It's not an easy chapter that we're going to look at. As a matter of fact, chapter 16, what you're going to see in chapter 16 is all the things you saw in chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. So in 8, 9, 10, and 11, we see these seven angels. And each angel steps up and grabs a trumpet and then blows the trumpet. And when they blow the trumpet, it's a warning of this, this destruction that is to come. It's, it's angels, and they're stepping up, and there's these seven warnings, and there's a warning about how God's going to pour out his wrath upon the earth, and how God's going to pour out his wrath upon the sea, and how God's going to pour out his wrath upon rivers and springs and water. He's going to pour out his wrath through the sun, and he's going to pour out his wrath upon the beast and all evil. And we see in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, God saying that he's going to pour out his wrath. He's going to dry up the Euphrates River, and he's going to come, and there's going to be a great battle in the air. And we see these seven angels pull up to these seven trumpets, and they blow them. Now, here's what's super fascinating. God's wrath never pours out before God's warning. God's not an angry God who just loses his temper like an angry father. Some of you grew up in a home where you had a father who just had this rage thing going on inside their heart. And it could go in your home. It could go from like super happy to super boom aggressive just like that. That is not God. What we see is anytime God pours out his wrath, before God pours out his wrath, God always pours out his mercy, his justice, and his kindness. And he always pours out his warning. And so what we see in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11 are the exact same things that we see. What we see in chapter 16 are the exact same things in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. But this time, instead of warning, we see them as actual wrath. We're going to see seven angels. And they're going to step up just like those seven angels in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11 did. But instead of grabbing um, trumpets, they're going to grab bowls. And these bowls are full of God's wrath. And they literally step up and they just start pouring them out upon humanity. And they just start pouring them out upon humanity. And so it reads like this. It says in Revelation chapter 16, we're going to read the whole chapter. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel left the temple and he poured out his bowl on the earth. And horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Then the second angel I poured, then the second angel 
poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all the waters saying, You are just, O holy one, who is and who was and always um, because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, your judgments are true and they are just. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone was burned by the blast of the heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over all the plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God or even give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish, and they cursed the God of the heavens for their pains and their sores, but they did not repent for their evil deeds and turn to God. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies towards the west without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouth of the dragon, the beasts and the false prophets. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all of the rulers of the world to gather them for the battle against the Lord on the great judgment day of the God Almighty. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. This is Jesus speaking. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And it goes back to John's vision, and it says, And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to the place where the Hebrews name Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished! Then the thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed and a great earthquake struck and the worst since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon split into three sections and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. So I want you to catch this. Like when we read chapter 16, it's this moment that we see in Scripture where God literally says, enough is enough. And he looks up and he says, sin has got to stop. He's got to stop. And so here's what you need to know about the wrath of God. I'm going to give you three things this morning. The first is just this. God is not out to destroy sinners. He is out to destroy sin. You need to get those two concepts in your mind. God is not out to destroy sinners. He's out to destroy sin. 
you have to understand this about God. God loves people and he hates sin. Say that with me. God loves people and he hates sin. Catch this. We didn't say God loves um, people and he hates sinners. We said God loves people and he hates sin. One more time. God loves people and he hates sin. It's interesting. There's these two passages I want to read to you this morning. You're going to be very familiar with the first and probably pretty familiar with the second. Um, You're probably really familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to read 16, 17, 18, and 19. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Through him. He says, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged. Do you remember me teaching this about three weeks ago? That for believers, there is no judgment for believers. That when when you and I are captured up into heaven, and when we stand before God, you need to know that there is no judgment for believers. Believers have already settled their sin life. God, you don't stand before God as a sinner. You stand before God as righteous. There is no judgment for believers. There's only judgment for non-believers. That's what he's saying in this passage. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Verse 19. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world... But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. He's saying there's this thing that happens in the human heart. There's this thing that happens in the human heart where people literally have the opportunity to choose Jesus, and they reject Jesus for whatever sinful activity that they want to hang on to. And this isn't just true for like some people, like every now and then, a few people. This is literally the the sinful heart gravitates towards sin. Let me, let me make this really super simple for you. One of the reasons I love that we do communion every week, besides that it was my idea, um, but, no, but part of that is this. I, I'm telling you, man, from Sunday to Sunday, I struggle to make right decisions. You struggle to make right decisions. And what I mean by that is this, that, man, my pride can get a hold of me, my arrogance can get a hold of me, my anger can get a hold of me, that I can regularly walk out of here on somewhere Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that, and look up and repeat the words of Paul who says, man, why did I do that? I am not the man I want to be. I constantly do the things I don't want to do. And I know that that's true for me. And if I know that's true for me, I know that's true for you because I know that that was true for Billy Graham. And I know that that was true for Mother Teresa and you and I aren't Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. I'll give you one. This week we're in a staff meeting. And we walk into the staff meeting, right? And we have this staff room and we go up there every Monday and we hand out prayer cards and we say, hey, why don't you pray for this person? Why don't you pray for this person? Hey, make sure you contact that person. Hey, listen, everybody, we need to be praying for this situation. And we spend the first part of our morning, the very first thing we give our morning to is we give our morning to prayer, praying for our church. And as I walk in, um, Kevin is sitting where I see it, sit. He, he has my seat, 
Now, you need to know we don't have assigned seats in our staff room. They're not. You just come in and you take a seat, but everybody knows that that's my seat. And so I end up, and I'm like, like, I'm like awkward, like, like now I don't know where to sit, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to do with my hands, and I'm like weird. And I look over, and I sit down, and he goes, I have your seat. <laughs> he goes, guess what? Maybe I'll have your job soon, too. <laughs> and I look at him, and I'm like, move. <laughs> and he goes, what? I said, you need to move. And he goes, are you serious? And I wasn't. I literally wasn't serious. But I watched him kind of flinch like, I think he's serious. And I was like, oh, I got this. I'm like, yep, pack him up, boy. Let's go. So he gathers all this stuff and we change seats. I just looked over at him and I'm like, just kidding, man. I was just kidding, just seeing if he would. So then I went home and I told my wife and she's like, you're a jerk. <laughs> this is all true. And then my guilt level started getting the best of me. So I took him to breakfast the next day and I apologized. I said, hey, you want to go get breakfast? He goes, yeah. And he goes, why are we going to breakfast? I'm like, because I was a jerk yesterday. But come on, we all do that. We all have moments where maybe we power up or maybe we get angry or maybe we, we talk about the person in the office. And there's this thing that happens in our life where literally sin, we know Jesus. We've given our life to Jesus. And yet still our heart gravitates towards wrong. Still our heart gravitates to the person that we don't want to be. And so there's this space where literally you have to choose Jesus, not 12 years ago, not when you were 12. You have to choose Jesus today. You have to choose Jesus tomorrow. You have to choose Jesus the next day. And you have to say, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me for the sin that separates me from you. You see, this passage, even though we're talking about God's wrath, is that before God gives wrath, he gives warning. Before God gives wrath... He gives opportunity to choose him. He makes a way for us to be saved. There's this other passage. It's in, Revelation, it's in Romans chapter 3. And it's Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Most people are very familiar with the first section of it. It just says, for everyone has sinned and everyone falls short of God's glorious standards. Everyone has these moments in your day and in your life where you literally go up and go, yeah, Lord, I'm a sinner. I do, I sin." And I don't want to, but it continually gets a hold of my heart. He says, for everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standards. You know, I was talking to a friend this week. Or a friend of mine was sharing a story of when he gave his life to Jesus. And he had all these arguments. The arguments that I gave you at the beginning of the talk. You know, like, come on, really, is the crime fit the punishment? Like, really, is God good or is he angry? And, and, and he kept having these conversations with his friend. And his friend kept saying, man, come on, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. And one day he looks at his friend and he goes, I got him. He's like, I got the argument. I got the one that's going to shut him down. He says, so you're telling me if I lived a perfect life and I did one white lie, I'd go to hell? What kind of God is that? And his friend looked at him and said, come on, dude. Everybody knows you've done more than tell one white lie. Come on, everybody knows you've done more than tell one white lie. Here's the truth. 
Come on, man. Everybody knows that you struggle with sin because sin is easy to captivate a heart. You see, God doesn't, God doesn't judge sin because somebody's told one white lie. God judges sin because sin right now, you think about where our world is at right now. I don't even have to preach this portion. You turn on the news for 30 minutes, and the stories you will hear will make you just pause and go, you got to be kidding me, that happened? That really, really happened? Somebody did that to another human being? Who would do that? And that's not just true about the evening news, that's true about your life. Meaning, you engage in conversations all the time where you're literally walking away going, who would do that? The way that sin has corrupted the world is something that God has to deal with. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, 24, he says, yet God in his grace, he freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through his Christ, through Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty of sin. So there's this moment <coughs> that Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin. Like we, we deserve death, but he gives us life. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. Shedding his blood, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who had sinned in the past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for himself. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when he believes in Jesus. And so there was this moment, like, right, okay, so we catch this moment. There's going to be this day, now catch me here, there's going to be this day in the future. It could be tomorrow, but we're just going to say it's in the future. There's going to be this day in the future where God judges sin. We're, we're not there yet. We have not experienced the judgment yet, but there's going to be a day where God judges sin. We're currently in the time right here where God is giving us grace. We're in, we're in this period of grace. And this is saying that in this period of grace, like God has this in a space of grace. We're not in a, in a space of wrath. We're not here. This day is coming. This day, this, we, don't, we don't know when, but this day is coming when God says, I'm done, dealing, I'm done with sin. No more will it ruin people's lives. I'm dealing with it. Right now we're in this time period where you and I walk in the love and mercy and kindness of Jesus. And we get to receive his mercy and his grace through his son. You see, I believe that God looks down, the heavens look down, and think, because they see it all. And they think, how do you choose, how do you choose sin over God's offering of mercy? Why would you do that? Let me give you an example. In 2001, if you were alive in 2001, how many of you guys were alive pre-2001? All right. Some of you are like, what? There was, like, there, was a, there was things before the internet? Yeah, it's called belts made of leather. And I was getting ready that morning, and I flip on the news just, that's kind of what used to be my habit. It's not my habit anymore, but I used to just flip on the, on the news, listen. And all of a sudden, I start hearing about these airplanes that are going into 
the Twin Towers and start hearing about it. And now I'm sitting at the edge of my bed, I'm half-dressed, and like getting dressed and putting socks on and you know, getting dressed, and I'm watching, and I am in disbelief. My sister flies for American Airlines. She's flying that day. I'm trying to figure out where she's at, if she's safe. Everybody's trying to figure out if the world's safe. And we're watching destruction happen in front of our eyes. Now catch this. Because this was this unbelievable moment in American history where we went, are you kidding me? Like, people do that? That happens? And we're literally stunned by the evil that we're seeing happen on the news. Now, now I want you to play this out. Because four months later, or three, three months later, again, we're, America has this other moment, and it's tied to that moment. Directly after that moment, we begin to go after the Taliban, and we begin to go after Osama bin Laden. We don't get him for years. But we begin to go into the Taliban. And in the very first engagement with the Taliban, there's 400 Taliban soldiers who attack a, a, a group of U.S. military boys. And in that engagement, dozens upon dozens of these Taliban soldiers were killed. One CIA soldier was killed. And we capture 86 Taliban soldiers. And when they begin to interrogate them and they begin to figure out who they are, they come across this one guy. His name is Suleiman Alferes. And it comes out that Suleiman Alferes was born in Washington, D.C. and raised in Southern California his whole life. He is not a Middle Eastern man. He is actually an American who, upon the Twin Towers, he goes across the and he joins the enemy. And it hits the news that you actually have somebody who has joined those that hate us. You see, I, I think that's a really crude illustration of what heaven looks down upon, upon those who reject God's love and reject God's mercy. And there's this moment of like, really? Why would you do that? Like, really? Why would you choose darkness over light? Why would you choose God's grace? Why would, you, why would you suppress God's grace and hang on to darkness when God gives you love and mercy and kindness? You see, my second point is this, is I truly believe that we tend to become like whatever we give our lives to. Like, you want to know what you're going to become? You want to know what you are becoming? Whatever you give your life to. The problem with sin is it has a way of capturing us in such a way that even God's wrath cannot stop you from participating in it. It's such an interesting passage. Do you know the difference between God's wrath and God's love? Catch this. God's wrath actually has a time limit on it. Did, did you know that? Literally, there's going to be a moment in history, we don't know when that is, when God's wrath is poured out no more. There will be no more. There will be no reason for it because there will no longer be sin because God's wrath is meant to deal with sin. You see, God's wrath has a time limit on it. God's love is never ending. God's love was in the creation of humanity and will be in the eternity of humanity. God's wrath 
has a time limit on it. it. There's a moment in time where God deals with sin and it's done. God's wrath is used to bring an end to sin. God's love is, meant, is meant to give people eternal life. God's love is a way of wooing you and saying, come to me. Don't resist me. And receive eternal life. God's wrath is meant for Satan and his demonic angels who destroy people's lives. Do you know that? Like, his, his wrath is literally meant for Satan and his demonic angels who have chosen to destroy God's creation. And God literally looks down and goes, like, you are trying to destroy the things I love, and my wrath will be reserved for you. And when I'm talking about you, we're talking about Satan's demonic kingdom. God's love was meant for people, and God's love was never, uh, God's love was meant for um, God's people, and God's wrath was never intended for God's people. People were never meant to experience the wrath of God. They receive the wrath of God when they choose sin and reject God. It's the equivalent of, of, of John Walker Lind who chose to, to change kingdoms and align himself with darkness. You see, God's love is used to save sinners. God's wrath is used to bring an end to sin. I want you to catch this. God's love is deep. The interesting part about deep love is deep love also has the ability to have deep wrath. Did you know that? Like somebody that has deep love also has in the, the same person has the ability to have deep wrath. And I'm not talking about dysfunctional wrath. I'm not talking about the drunk father who you come home and life is really, really good and they walk through the door and they go from being happy to being angry in a heartbeat. We're not talking about that type of love. We're talking about the deep, genuine kind of love. Let me make this a little easier to understand let me ask you a question. Who do you love the very most? Top 10 list, top five list, top two list. Like right now, just in your head, put the people in your life right now who you love deeply. Maybe it's a mom or a dad. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's a girlfriend. But you have this love for people. that is It's deep love. It's, 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 it's deep love. Let me keep asking the question. Who would you give your life for? Like, you ain't messing with my family. No, no, I will take you out kind of love. Who do you have deep love for that you would give your life for, that you would protect at all cost? Whoever those people are, your love is so deep that you also have a deep wrath for anybody that would try to hurt them. Deep love and deep wrath, they go together. Let me ask you a different question. Have you ever seen a Liam Neeson movie? Have you ever seen the movie Taken? You know, there's Taken 1 and there's Taken 2 and there's Taken 3. 
I call them taken, taken again, taken some more. <laughs> Liam Neeson has this line in the movie, they take his daughter. And they call him on a cell phone. And they demand these things from him. And Liam Neeson says back really calmly in that cell phone, hey, listen, you don't know me. Because if you did, you would know that I don't have any money. But I do have a particular set of skills. And if you give my daughter back right now, no harm will come to you. But if you do not, I will hunt you down and I will kill you. That's terrifying. <laughs> and then you know what happens in every Liam Neeson movie? He gets his daughter back and somebody dies. Every time. Every time. You'll never even need to rent one because that's what happens. That is like, that's what happens. There's this passage in Romans 1.18. It says that God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He literally is saying in this passage in Romans 1, he's saying that in order to reject God, you have to suppress him. You can't, it's not just that you're ignoring him like he's not there, like my puppy does me. It literally, God comes and he displays his love and he displays his affection for you. And then you don't only just ignore it, you suppress it and say, nope, he doesn't love me. Nope, I love this more than I love him. You have to suppress the truth. It means that we make a conscious decision to choose what we want over what God would want for us. Time after time in Revelation 16, we see people experiencing God's judgment for refusing to repent. And what really is going on is that these angels, as they pour out their wrath, that God's literally, he's pouring out this wrath, and he's not doing it to like to hurt people. He's doing it so that people will repent. And three times in chapter 16, it says, and they did not repent from their sins or turn to God. The only reason we experience God's wrath is because we reject God's love. God did not create wrath out of anger. God created wrath out of dealing with sin. And God offers love, but in the end, he says, I will use wrath, and all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to return to me and respond to my love. Here's the last thing. When you accept God's love and mercy, you avoid God's wrath. I want, I want you to catch this. I used to have a pastor. He was my pastor. He passed away last year. His name was Tom Stipe. He was the pastor of a church called Vineyard, um, Denver Vineyard. And when Lenan and I first got married, we started going to his church, and we were young. I was uh, 20, and she was 18. And we got married right out of high school. And uh, um, in, in, in that period of time, it was the first church that I ever walked in where I didn't have to dress up. I could wear flip-flops and shorts, and I was like, this is the vineyard I'm in forever, right? I told somebody in the hallway this year, I said, I might try and preach in shorts once this year. We'll see. It would be after a long bunch of tanning and, like, making my legs look better, but whatever. But he used to say these words, and they're probably a little bit offensive, but they're a whole lot of true. The offensive and the whole lot of true sounds like this. Sin makes you stupid. He's saying that it's crazy 
that we have things that happen in our life that we literally, if, if we could take ourselves out of that situation and stand off to the side and re- either reflect to ourselves or maybe we were paying attention and it was happening to somebody else, that we would tell them, don't do that, it will ruin your life. But in the moment, sin has this way of kind of fooling us and we're going, it'll be fine. No one will know. It won't cost you anything. He's going like, like, that's stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Let me make this incredibly clear to you. I can tell you that I have had at least a dozen of these counseling sessions. Where I'm in a counseling session, I'm with a husband and a wife. They're getting ready to split because he has a girlfriend. Now here's the weird part. Here's the weird part in these things. I've been doing counseling for 30 years. And the weird part is this guy, he wants his, his, he wants his, he, he wants his, he doesn't want his wife to leave him, but he doesn't want to give up his girlfriend. And we sat in these sessions, and he literally is in this moment of like, well, I, I, I don't know why you would leave me. I, I, I love you. I just don't think I should have to give up my girlfriend. Okay, so I'm, very, I'm, I'm way more pastoral than this. But in that moment, you know what I'm thinking? Are you an idiot? Are you stupid? And the answer is yes. Yes, any man that thinks that he can have a girlfriend and a wife is an idiot. Stupid. But I'm way more pastoral than that. Because sin makes you stupid. Let, let me give you a different one. Maybe, maybe that one didn't land for you. Maybe I'm in another counseling session, and I'm with a man, and I'm with a dude, and this guy has an addiction, and it is costing him everything he owns. It's costing him his wife. It's costing him his job. It's costing him his friendships. It's costing him his relationship with his kids, and she's saying, give it up. Get help. And he keeps going, No, I'm okay. I'm fine. And what you're looking at and you're saying, this thing's costing you your whole life. Everything that is good is going to be taken from you and you're going to hang on to this thing that is killing you and ruining your relationship with your kids and ruining your relationship with your family. And so when my pastor friend Tom would say sin makes you stupid, it's because it makes you blind to things that are destroying you. And what God is doing in Revelation chapter 16 is he's saying, he's saying, like, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. Don't let it ruin your life. Don't let it destroy you. And there's this moment for God where he just literally goes, no more sin will ruin no more people's lives. And if he can't get you to turn through love, then he'll use wrath. And he will judge sin at some point in some time. And so it goes on to say, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolishness, thinking and letting them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're proud. They're boastful. They're arrogant. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. 
They know God's justice requires that, they, that those who do these things deserve to die. And they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. So here's my closing thought. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. This week I had somebody ask me, so how do you see this as a book of hope? Because I do, I see the book of Revelation as a book of hope. It's this hope that, that John is given this vision and that he writes down these things to these seven churches who are being persecuted. And the hope is this. It tells us what God wants for us. And God doesn't want us to be separated from him. God doesn't want people to experience his wrath. God doesn't want sin to rule in a person's life. Jesus is a gift, not a curse. The book of Revelation is a vision of how God will eradicate sin. And sin doesn't have to be your story. A life of sin doesn't have to be your testimony. It doesn't have to win in your life. Satan doesn't have the right to ruin people's lives forever. In Jesus, there is hope. You see, here's the problem. Oftentimes, we're so afraid of hell that we miss and forget the hope of heaven. So oftentimes, we concentrate on the idea of hell that we miss the hope of Jesus and heaven. John 3.16, that none would perish and that all would have eternal life. That's the hope of Scripture. That's the hope of the gospel. Last week I told you about the guy that kept asking me to give my life to Jesus, and I'm so glad he did. And I would just say this. If you have not given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus. If you have not given Jesus your heart, give your heart to Jesus. If you have not given Jesus your marriage, then give your marriage to Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world. Don't let sin win. Don't let Satan have his way in your life. Give your life to Jesus. Before I pray, I was thinking about this last service, and I think it still holds true this service. You know the, the crazy part that uh, as we talk about Revelations 15 and 16, we also last week finished with Revelation 14, and there's this moment in Revelation 14 where Jesus um, says, hey, the fields are white. Like, the harvest is ready. Like, the harvest is ready right now. And there's kind of this thing in most people's lives that they're like, hey, I'm kind of waiting for, like, you know, I know, have you told, any, have you told your family or friends about Jesus? And it's kind of like, no, not, we're just, they're just not quite ready. And the truth is this, that scripturally, that's not true. That when Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, when he was raised from the dead and he conquered sin, from that point on, the harvest has been ready. People are ready to receive Christ. The harvest is now. Now, so here, here's the deal. Is that it would be... Let me play this out for you. If you read Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis chapter 2 is where... where Eve eats this fruit, and we're going to call the fruit an apple because everybody's seen a picture of Eve eating an apple. 
I think it should be a grape. Grapes are better. <laughs> and there's this moment, right, in chapter 2. And Satan shows up in the, he shows up as a snake. And I just think that anytime a snake starts talking to you, you should run, but she doesn't. It's weird. And she, he says, he says, eat of this fruit. And she says, I can't because God told me I can't, that my eyes would be open to like sin, right? Like what I'm saying is in this moment, what we see in Genesis chapter two is really almost like, like not even a big deal. Like, this is almost white lie stuff. This is almost like, like to eat of an apple or a fruit, like because God said not to, is sin, yes. But like you really don't think that it's that, this, like this isn't a very big moment, right? Like if my kids, if they ate an apple, if I came home and said, hey, don't eat that apple, and I come home and they ate that apple, I'd be like, dude, I told you not to, right? But if they steal the car, they're going to be in more trouble, right? Okay, catch this moment. Hold on to this moment for just a second. Genesis chapter 2. Don't give yourself to sin. Why? Because now we go centuries later, thousands of years later, and now we have Revelation chapter 16. This moment here was a nothing moment almost. And now humanity sins in ways that we can't even fathom. Because when sin takes off in your life, it grows. And what you think isn't a big deal in the moment, you can't control when you're 40. You can't control when you're 50. You've lost control when you're 60. What we think over a moment, and you play that over centuries, and now we sell kids for prostitution. Sin's a big deal. Don't not deal with it in your life. And so there's this space, right? And the reason you're in the room is because God gave you a moment where he became real to you. And the most real thing that you have is your story. Don't be afraid to share your story because it is unloving to allow people their space. So I, don't want to, I don't want to tell them about Jesus. But there's a moment where somebody's going to tell them about Jesus and it's going to be Jesus. Be loving. Be kind. Be merciful. Share your story about Jesus with your friends and your family and your neighbors. That's what's loving and kind. So everybody put their hands like this. The Lord, we love you. We, as a people, say thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, if we have anything between us and you right now, we just want to deal with it. Would you forgive us? Would you do a new work in us so that we become reflections of you? Thank you that you've given us your mercy and your kindness and that we don't sit under your wrath. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great weekend. Hey, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends. If you find this tool valuable and would like to support this ministry, you can do so easily through our DTV app or on our website, dtvchurch.org forward slash give. God bless you and have a great rest of your week.